Known for expressive murals and historical landmarks, Oakland is a city celebrated for its legacy of art and activism. As a central location for frontline movements in the 1960s, Oakland birthed the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, which prided itself on preserving the livelihoods of Black men, women, and children. Today, the iconic images of Huey Newton in the wicker chair, rows of black berets and leather jackets, and the storied logo of the Panther itself grace the sides of buildings in the neighborhood where the radical movement was founded as persistent reminders of the history of the place as it changes. In this episode of Unhousing, we explore the consequences of urban development through extensive gentrification and share the stories of leaders who have learned to pivot in an effort to salvage the legacies of their neighborhood and communities. As Oakland faces yet another displacement crisis affecting citizens of various backgrounds, preserving legacy requires partnership, intentional interruptions, and the willingness to invest within your community for long-term outcomes. As artists, educators, entrepreneurs, and elders share their stories of resilience, it becomes clear that the preservation of cultural legacy demands stepping outside of professional silos in the service of a shared purpose. As cities change, it is possible to create space for coexistence, where original community members live alongside new neighbors, cultivating areas rich with their own history yet hostile to erasure. Andre Jones, also known as Natty Rebel, is a D.C. native who moved to Oakland, California in 2007. Founder and CEO of BAMP, Bay Area Mural Program, Jones speaks on the importance of preserving legacies through art. As gentrification displaces history and culture by removing families, Jones and his employees collaborate with elders as well as younger residents to produce meaningful murals that weave in and through the city. By inscribing vibrant scenery on brick walls with dripping spray paint and thick acrylics, Jones tells the stories of West Oakland as they were first shared long ago, unearthing the value of oral histories. As new buildings are erected throughout the city, pieces of the past rise with them, each splatter and splotch screaming, we're still here. Uh, my name is Andre Jones, aka Natty Rebel, um, and I'm the executive director of the Bay Area Mural Program. And I was one of those kids that was mischievous, but wasn't necessarily bad, but really because when I would get in trouble or even when I would get spankings from my parents or get put on punishment, you really couldn't punish me because art was always my escape. So even if you grounded me, told me to go sit in the corner, if I had a pencil, a crayon, a piece of paper, I could sit in the corner for hours and I wouldn't scream, wouldn't fuss, I would just disappear into my own little world. So art really was like my therapy, my escape, my expression, like all mixed into one. I created the Bay Area Mural Program to create a platform that which basically levels the playing field because I know a bunch of Oakland artists um, that were born here, that have moved here, that just don't get highlighted or don't get hired for the big projects. So I was like, you know what? Let me create a nonprofit organization, self-proclaim myself as the CEO and executive director, and now we have, you know, 
creative directors, assistant directors, um, admin, that now when they approach projects, people take them seriously now because now they're not just talking to an artist, they're talking to the creative director of an organization. Um, so for the local community, a lot of the murals that we do are their input, you know, all of them are community engaged. A lot of the community helps us design the murals so that when we approach a, a wall in a certain community or a certain neighborhood, we want that neighborhood's input because they're the ones that have to look at it every day. They're the ones that need to take ownership of it so that it can stay a part of you know, their community and beautify their you know, area of, of, of transit. So I feel like it's um, super important to engage community. Um, and you know, a part of that is not just presenting the artwork for them to look at, but it's you know, getting their input and their, their feedback even on the design process. We have a team of about 22 artists. Um, so with every project, we always want to make sure that it's a good narrative. So we want to make sure that not only the artist identifies with the project, but they also identify with the cause and the community that they're going to be painting with. So, you know, that's first step. Um, and then we make sure that we set up workshops to really just get a sense of what that community wants to see in the mural. Um, and really just open up the floor for conversation. Uh, we've had so many discussions that started about mural design, but then have gone into everything from you know, discussions about environment and housing and, and you name it, I mean, well too, is we address a lot of social issues that might be, you know, good for conversation to put on the table, but are they things that people want to look at all day, every day? You know, so how do we find that, you know, that happy medium of addressing social issues that people really want to discuss and talk about but then also putting a nice, you know, colorful, finished product that people can also look at and be like, oh, you know, you know, at first glance that's beautiful, but if you look at it, you know, a little bit longer, you're like, there's layers to it. Okay, there's a message behind it. So trying to find that, you know, happy medium of narrative. Um, but that really hasn't hindered the design process. We always come up with something that. You know, the majority of people can agree with. Uh, we try and get everybody's input when we hear a lot of different ideas. That's why some of our murals are super busy, um, just because we've had like 60 people, you know, like, oh, you should put, you know, indigenous flowers, and you should put this group, and you should do this, and it should signify this. And it's like, okay, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I'm trying to vision that. We'll see if we can sneak that in the background. And just kind of like put together a design that, you know, is cohesive. You know, when you want to get to know any civilization, modern or ancient, whether it be Rome, Greece, you know, Austria, Ukraine, you know, Africa, anywhere, you study its art before you study its politics, before you study its law, before you, you go and study its art. When you really want to know what that civilization was thinking, breathing, eating, doing, you go study its art. So to me, it's like, Artists, you know, need to be valued as intricate parts of community. So just playing my role in making sure that artists have a platform, at least in this city, to be able to, you know, have a voice. As Paul Robeson wrote, artists are the gatekeepers of truth. We are the civilization's radical voice. 
Activist, educator, and researcher Lylon Hewen, whose ancestral history pulses through Oakland's Chinatown, reminds us of the importance of policy. Through working with National Capacity, Hewen conducted research on displacement and gentrification, specifically addressing their impact on Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. She understands the importance of activism informed by experience, having documented resistance movements in cities where she's conducted research, like Philadelphia and Seattle. In the midst of the 2008 housing crisis, Hewen used her knowledge to support those affected by financial loss. And by the time she departed from national capacity, she had created an in-depth report listing 24 strategies utilized across 10 different regions to combat the harm of displacement within the AAPI community. Somebody said once, like, oh, you're the most Oakland person I know. And I was like, that's interesting. Like, I never thought about that. But I was like, oh, actually, like, our family came here before a lot of people's family came here. And yet, when I grew up as a child, I didn't, I was never made to feel like I belonged. You know, there's like this stereotype of the perpetual foreigner for a lot of Asian Americans. Like, we all came, like, fresh off the boat, like, recently, you know? And when I started to like learn this history, I was like, oh, like it just, it got so deep for me. Cause I was like, oh, I really belong here. And like, I'm part of this historical narrative of this city that I love. And these are the reasons why. And now I know my history. And I was like 35 when I learned my history. And I was like, why didn't I learn that in school? Why, why didn't I learn it as a, as a child? Um, so my parents were activists at UC Berkeley back in the 60s. It was like height of the, um, you know, all of the social movements. And so they were part of the Third World Liberation Front. They helped found Asian American Studies um, at UC Berkeley. And so very much were organizers, activists, and advocates. Um, and so, yeah, I think I've kind of, you know, become those um, in different ways, yeah myself as well in the work that I do. Um, I did a lot of grassroots organizing work. Um, I've advocated, you know, in terms of policy and at, you know, Congress and like, you know, local government, right? Um, and then, you know, activist, I think in the sense of like, yeah, whenever we see things that are unfair, we're going to act on them, you know, we're going to speak up. Um, and that's kind of like part of the Oakland DNA, I think. So, <laughs> And then my family's history, I think. I definitely get that from them as well. <laughs> I feel a huge responsibility um, for my family. Yeah, my great-grandfather and my grandfather and um, like my grandmothers who are garment workers here in this neighborhood um, to defend our stories and to preserve them and to preserve this place of belonging for them. Um, and then, yeah, seeing my, my parents who um, also grew up in different neighborhoods also invest into our Asian American communities and seeing them fight for people who didn't have a voice, right, who didn't speak the language or didn't have the political power. Um, because I've come up in that and I have the access and the resources and the knowledge to be able to navigate that world, I do feel a responsibility to, like, use the, that privilege that I have and the knowledge that I have to help speak up for people who also don't have a voice and who don't have the resources. 
um, or the political power or you know that entitlement uh, and, and right to shaping our city. I think about like the stories that I hear about like the seniors who get pushed out of Oakland Chinatown and they move to suburbs and then they pass away much more quickly, right? Because they've lost that sense of belonging and purpose, I think, and community, right? We are social beings, we live in community, we need each other. Um, and that story really sticks with me um, because I think about um, when we were up in the city council meetings and we were speaking about certain developments, right? And then we would have these like mostly young white, mostly, you know, kind of gentrifier types come and say, oh, well, why are they making such a big fuss about it? It's just parking lots, you know? And we were like, it's not just parking lots to us. These are our neighborhoods. These are our stories, our histories, our places of belonging. And you don't get it, obviously. You clearly don't get it if you're, if you're just saying that they're parking lots, right? Um, and so in that journey of like traveling around the country and learning about all these different stories of these cultural districts, I started to just really understand that, yeah, we're not fighting just for like bricks and mortar buildings, right? We're actually fighting for like a place to belong in this country that we haven't gotten to feel in so long. Um, and like now finally, like Asian Americans are being acknowledged as like part of this country and like we have some visibility in media, like some of our stories are getting out there, but for too long, right? we were invisible and that's really damaged like a lot of um i think our own you know sense of self and and power in this country we have strategies we have policies that can work right because a lot of people feel like really hopeless when they talk about gentrification right that it's like capitalism we can't do anything about it right but there's actually so many things that we can do about it um we just have to have like the political will and courage to enact them right that might be different than what we've been doing for many years because those things haven't been working right because in oakland for so long um the developers have run this town you know and they can get whatever they want because all the politicians have always said oh we need development in oakland we need this inf you know infusion of, of cash but they never asked for anything in return right they never made sure that it was equitable and fair and inclusive of existing communities that have been in oakland for so long Knowing that my parents were part of a social change has really helped me understand that change is always possible. So, so many people are socialized to believe that change is not possible, right? That's like part of just like a cultural norm and like, you know, our sense of like hopelessness and depression and like, oh, some of the narratives that the system is always bigger than us, right? But I think me knowing my family's story of like how they were able to create change, you know, as students, as college students, right, you see Berkeley and to change the world and then to see it 50 years later and we have these amazing institutions like Asian Health Services that my dad was part of creating and, um, you know, Abaldsi, um, East Bay Asian Local Development Corporation, like all of these um, organizations were created by students 50 years ago, you know, and that... I've always believed in student power um, and the power of young people, but I think a lot of you know adults can get set in their ways and then think that nothing's ever gonna change. And if we all believe that, then nothing is gonna change, right? But to me, systems are made up of people. And 
if the people have the will to do something, then we could change the systems. So I, I deeply believe in that just because I've seen it and, and I know it from my, my parents' stories. Yeah, I think the love of our city and our town like has driven a lot of people to do this work and volunteer many, many thankless hours. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think just like hearing people's stories and, and knowing um, what is really special about Oakland and knowing, yeah, that we have to protect it and fight for it. And we've seen, you know, what's happened to San Francisco just across the bay and knowing that we don't want that to happen here. Um, people have really risen up and like fought back, you know, and whether it's like Oaklanders deciding to open up a business, even in the middle of a pandemic, right, and saying we're going to claim space, we're going to like thrive, we're going to benefit from this gentrification and benefit from like the renaissance that's happening in Oakland, right, like we're refusing to like not be part of it, you know. I think that's really important. And then people like artists and, and speaking up and like, telling the stories of Oakland and preserving, you know, these places and our histories, like that's a really important resilience and resistance that we saw, you know, in the murals and we saw in the um, festivals that happen here in Oakland. Like these are how we take up space. This is how we preserve who we are. Um, and this is how we fight politically, right? Like we, you know, took drums into the planning department, right? Because that's how we fight is we take up space and we change the culture and we say what we're doing is not okay and what we're doing is not enough right we need to be doing more and the elected officials and the officials get really scared of it but we have to push you know and that's part of Oakland's legacy is to organize and to resist um, and to fight you know, and to speak up when we see things that, yeah, are not okay, and when we see the destruction of our cultures and our, um, you know, our histories and our buildings and our sense of belonging, um, I think, like, our, our sense of resilience as Oaklanders and our legacy of the Black Panthers and of so many social movements gives people, like, a sense of empowerment that, yeah, we can change and we can fight back. And when we fight, we usually win. Yeah, I remember in doing some of the, the work and visiting other cities and, you know, there's a point where we're like, okay, we're not just preserving buildings, right? Um, although that can be important, right? Architecturally, like we have, yeah, these different commissions that are about preserving buildings, right? Um, it's really about preserving spaces for us to belong and, and feel like we are part of, you know, this city um, and this country. Um, and yeah, so it's like, it's about preserving our history and then it's also about just holding space for like our future generations to be able to envision the communities that they want to, right? So we're not saying like, oh, it all has to stay the same, right? Not that we can't innovate, right? But that our communities have to have a, a seat at the table when we do that, right? Um, so for example, like a lot of our old businesses here in Chinatown are retiring or closing, right? People are getting older, their kids don't wanna carry on the family businesses, right? So how do we, really innovate and work with our next generations to say like what do you want this neighborhood to look like how can it innovate and change and transform right cities are changing and transforming all the time right we have to be resilient but we also have to be like at the table when those decisions are being made
Professor Angela Davis wrote, and freedom is a constant struggle. It is in collectivities that we find reservoirs of hope and optimism. David Peters, a West Oakland native, gives seasonal tours around his neighborhood, where his family arrived after making the brave move north from the Deep South, ultimately settling in what became Peters' family home. Walking block by block, Peters carries a megaphone and portable speaker so that anyone with an earshot might hear. The tour pays homage to notable neighbors like Delilah Beasley, the first black woman in the United States with a weekly newspaper column. He plans to keep the legacy of Black Oakland alive by educating knowledge seekers through community-based programs. Having grown up in Oakland after the rise of the Black Panthers, Peters takes pride in his city's historical past. As a witness to his ever-changing neighborhood, Peters uses the Black Liberation walking tour to reinforce and memorialize the importance of his West Oakland community. There's lots of groundwater issues. We've got the issues with the freeway noise. We've got the issues with urban renewal and eminent domain. You know, entire neighborhoods where, you know, with strips of neighborhoods are wiped out when you put these freeways through. Uh, this freeway is built along the red line. So I'm assuming everybody here is familiar with redlining, the HOLC risk assessment maps, originally grew in the 30s. The red line here in this part of Oakland went right along Telegraph, which is the next street right over there. So, of course, they cited the freeway to, at the red line, you know, to contain the folks, you know, to make tangible this line that's on the map, in case anybody were to get it twisted. Uh, and so, in, in telling the story of West Oakland, in telling the story of uh, neighborhoods, uh, black and other minority neighborhoods throughout this country, you know, freeways are sited along the red lines in every city in the nation. And it, it's just still happening. You know, I think Miami just had a fight around the siding of a freeway there. Uh, we certainly had our fights. You know, West Oakland now is popularly defined as the area inside the three freeways and then bounded by the bay. Uh, containment zone, as, as we've taken to calling it, uh, and the devastation that that, is, that caused, the redevelopment, not only for freeways, but just to sheer urban blight, urban blight. Uh, uh, James Baldwin famously called urban renewal Negro removal. And this is what we saw here in Oakland. We saw uh, the, the friends of the Hoover Durant Public Library. This neighborhood once had two libraries. One would have been right next door to this building where the freeway came through. This was lost for the freeway. Uh, and the other will, is another stop will will pass by. So I'll talk more uh, about it then. But when we talk about development and development pressures in West Oakland, you know, we have to come back to those redlining maps. You know, we have to come back to the brother who won a gold medal in Hitler's Olympics in 1936, came home and lived on the other side of the Telegraph, not in the in the segregated place where black people couldn't live or weren't supposed to. Uh, and you can look at the notes in these redlining maps. Many of them contain the notes. Uh, and I think the note for that neighborhood says something like, uh, very few, very few Negroes live in this neighborhood. Matter of fact, you can't tell uh, a Negro home from any other. And matter of fact, in many cases, their yards and homes are better maintained uh, than their neighbors. But yet and still, it was a reason to downgrade uh, that neighborhood because of the 
presence of a few and the p potential encroachment of more, uh, quote, undesirables. Now, let's be clear, undesirables there weren't only black people, weren't only brown people. This included a lot of the ethnic uh, whites that lived in this neighborhood, Portuguese, Italians, you know, then Japanese, you know, all sorts of people. If you weren't Anglo, British, uh, you know, uh, extraction, uh, you were all bad. And so, you know, these are the things that are institutionalized and systematized in our processes and our institutions and our systems that uh, while we no longer use these words and these definitions, these systems are set up to enable and empower folks who were uh, in positions to be able to take advantage of them that long ago. So these things get institutionalized, and if we continue to do things the same way, rely on the same mechanisms, we'll always get the same result. So what I like to tell people, yeah, when we get them reparations, if we don't change how this systems work, all that money or what, whatever it is is going to run back downhill uh, to where it began, because that's how our systems are organized. Um, and so maybe without, I'll stop preaching, and uh, without further ado, you know, we'll listen to Ms. Cook. One of the things, one of the, one of the issues, one of the issues that's been highlighted here is our neighbor country has moved here and is now living outdoors on this block. Um, and so for a space that is, for me and many others, a cultural sanctuary, it is now no longer giving me all the positive vibes that I used to get because uh, one of my neighbors is unhoused. And so for someone who runs a cultural organization, and along with uh, Center for Artistry, who's done a lot of other murals in this neighborhood, um, we believe in the power of cultural protective factors. And so we wanted, we are trying to negotiate uh, an understanding that our black cultural spaces are sacred, are inviolate, are a place where you, where we, by agreement, don't camp. Um, just like schools or churches uh, or the Oakland Museum, um, we don't camp in front of our important historical and cultural sites. But country needs a place to live, right? So the day that country rolled out, rolled up here, I seen him the first day, I was like, bruh, you got to move, you can't be here. I can't make you move, but you can't be here. So how do we support people in our neighborhood that don't have a place to sleep indoors um, at the same time make sure that we respect our cultural spaces? You know, this is no different than the street memorial that you see with the bottles and the candles, somebody that was murdered. Um, this is a, a memorial to lives that have passed and lives that are yet to come. Uh, so as we navigate this tension between housing for our unhoused neighbors and respect for our cultural institutions and the positive impacts those have on community health, this is a current, topical, right now issue uh, that we're working with um, in our spaces. You know, it's not necessarily an issue with the city, but amongst our neighbors. And how do we get the support for our folks who, who don't have a roof over their heads to have a roof over their heads. And so ultimately, it's not about moving people from spot to spot. It's about getting people permanently housed and inside. Um, yeah, this is, this, is the, uh, this is the orchard, right? So we got a little uh, fava beans came off the plant in the front, uh, key limes, uh, got some pomegranates and two dwarf plum trees. You can see the lemons are coming back from, they actually grow 20 feet down in the next yard, so they fruit at handheld height. 
uh, and just some, you know, ornamental plants. You know, chickens are important. Um, the eggs, the yolks of the eggs are nothing like you see in the store. Um, not quite as good as when they're on pasture, when like when you're out in the country, they're grain fed. But again, you start, they taste nothing like, you start baking with them. There's just nothing like getting the ones from the store. And so, kind of getting back to those roots. Uh, people like to call them Victory Garden for World War II, and it had nothing to do with that. Black people have been growing food since before we came to this country. Again, just, you know, some more fruit trees. These, these are young, uh, some young, you know, these are young silkies. Um, Chickens, you know, in the yard, the other ones are reds, and it's just, you know, the stuff in the yard that uh, it's a, it's a never-ending project. I think these bricks are going to turn into an oven where I can put a whole pig in. You know, I like to like to entertain, like to bring people together. Um, and so that's one of the things that we're always working on is community building through food and fellowship. And so I think that's foundational to getting to know your neighbors, to build community, and that provides the trust, a foundation to be able to take on projects in the neighborhood, find out what people are interested in doing. When we talk about gentrification, we talk about the rising cost of housing and we talk about the changing demographics of an area. The families who raise children in a neighborhood can no longer afford to live there. Historically black and immigrant working class communities are replaced by white people working white collar jobs. The economic picture changes, yes, but also the cultural expression of the people who used to call the place home risk being forgotten, lost to the passage of time. But more than accidentally forgotten, gentrification is an act of erasure, which makes the practice of memory and remembering revolutionary. Resistance to gentrification may take the shape of building tiny houses, for instance, as we'll learn about in the next episode but it also takes the shape of stamping the physical environment with two and three story reminders of a community's history, utilizing paint as cultural preservation. It also takes the shape of telling and retelling the stories captured in those murals, keeping the dead alive to walk the old neighborhood alongside us. It also takes the shape of protecting, providing for, and honoring those artists who teach us new ways to see the world. This is Unhousing, Claiming the Human Right to Home, a Moral Courage Project, a collaboration between the University of Dayton Human Rights Center and Proof, Media for Social Justice. I'm your host, Amaria Jones. I'm also the writer of this episode, which features original music from Eric Charlton. Moral Courage Radio is produced by Joel Proust. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with all your friends. Click subscribe in the app and leave us a glowing review. This will help other listeners find us.